Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guests will be Amy Lee Coy, who is the author of From Death Do I Part, and Brian Murphy, who runs Self-Led Solutions here in New York City. Uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug for our organization and our book. Our organization is the HAMS Harm Reduction Network. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for anyone who wants to make a positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our website is hamsnetwork.org. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. And you get more information on our website at hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest tonight is Amy Lee Coy, and I'm very happy to have her as our guest um, because we're going to talk a little bit about self-recovery. And if you've ever been to treatment or to AA meetings, you might have heard this thing of your alternatives are jails, institutions, or death. It's work the 12 steps or you sign your own death warrant. And it's not true. In fact, the research from the NIAAA, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, says that that 75% of the people who quit drinking alcohol, 75% of alcoholics who quit drinking do it on their own without a formal treatment, without going to AA meetings. So it's more common for people to quit on their own than to go to rehab or to go to AA. And Amy is an example of a person that has taken care and stopped their addictions on their own, written a book about it. The book has a lot of good information about things that you can do to help you help yourself overcome your addiction. Amy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm very happy you're here. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your book? You can start wherever you'd like. Um, well, I was inspired to write the book because when I was 35, I found myself lost. I was sick from alcohol. I had been drinking um, daily into blackouts for since the age of about 22. And before that, I'd started using drugs and alcohol when I was about 12. And then I was put into my first rehab center when I was 14, and that was 1984. So it was before rehabs were on television or common, and it was kind of a scary experience, actually. And um, and it was there that I was put into my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, which didn't click very well with me, but, but, you know, I was told to believe I was an alcoholic, and that was the life ahead of me. And um, I had a difficult time with that, and after that rehab, there was just a string of rehabs. And then um, when I was 15, they started introducing the antidepressants, and that was a whole other mess. And um, I never quite – the choice was, as far as I ever saw – to go to Alcoholics Anonymous and be this lifelong alcoholic in recovery, or for me, because I was using alcohol and drugs to numb myself. So the choice was to go to Alcoholics Anonymous or really to drink, you know, because I didn't have another option. Of, I wasn't taught how to deal with painful feelings and um, really deep despair. I wasn't taught how to do that. So I really just kept drinking and drinking and um until, like I said, at 35, I start, I was so sick, I started to hit the delirium tremens. <laughs> and um, 
for anybody who's never had those, it's horrifying. I mean, you close your eyes and your eyes don't close. And what you see is scary and it doesn't stop. And, you know, obviously that's a wake-up call. And so my choice then was either to figure out what to do because I knew I couldn't turn again to rehab or again to AA because it, I'd been there so many times it didn't help. And the other choice was just to die because my body was giving out, you know, too much mm-hmm. abuse for too long. And I still, so I had a tiny seed still left in me from somewhere of curiosity about, I wanted to know who I was without all of, without the drugs and the alcohol, and even without the severe depression and the despair that I had before I even started drinking. I wanted to know, like, life without all of that. And so that little bit of curiosity prompted a a determination in me that you wouldn't believe, and I just went at it, and um, that is how I began to quit on my own, and I immediately started writing. I mean, obviously it's been edited since, but I wanted to keep track of my thought process and what what it was like to go through this just with a blank slate and, you know, sort of observe myself. Okay, a lot of people, I think, uh, use alcohol to medicate things like depression, anxiety, despair, social phobia. What are some alternatives that you have found that are useful for dealing with these negative emotional states without using alcohol or drugs? Well, first of all is to, like, not be afraid of of a feeling, not being afraid of depression. Like, sometimes depression is part of the wave, the ebb and, ebb and flow of emotion. So if you can be willing to feel bad and then trust that that feeling is going to pass. Because the thing with numbing yourself and, and anything you might use, sex, drugs, whatever, um, it's immediate gratification, immediate resolving that bad feeling. So I really learned patience and and used it all the time when I quit. I just got used to it because when I used, I didn't really have a lot of patience. Yeah, I could put off having a cigarette until maybe three, but even that was hard. But, you know, I didn't really learn how to practice patience and you have to when you quit. You just have to be okay with with writing things out, writing out bad feelings. And there's distractions and things you can do that are helpful sometimes, and you don't want to be too hard on yourself. But really, I mean, it's such a, I mean, you got to have it. It really is, yeah, <laughs> patience. Okay, patience is good. I see uh, one of your chapters is titled Cravings, and how do you deal with cravings? Tell us about that. Um, at first, when when I first quit, I did a lot of noticing, you know. Um, I really was on my own. Um, like, I didn't have a person to call up and say, I'm, you know, I'm, I really want to have a drink, you know. Somebody I could, like you would in AA, you'd have your, your sponsor or somebody who understood the process. I was in a small town and um, my husband, you know, though he was patient and kind, he wasn't an addict, so didn't know exactly. So what I did, part of my process at that time, was just kind of pay attention to my thoughts when I would have a craving, like, um, you know, what's going on? You know, might I be wanting something else to, you know, or, you know, if it was overwhelming and I was really aggravated, I would just get myself out of a situation, you know. Um, I took a lot of hot showers, 
you know, or it just depends on the mood I was in when the craving hit, whether I did something active or inner work. Well, self-soothing is something that's recommended a lot in dialectal behavioral therapy, things like hot showers. Did you use other things? Did you eat ice cream or things? Or um, I tried not to go for the food too much, but... Um, it, yeah, because when you drink and smoke, because I quit smoking at the same time, and I was a heavy smoker all those years, and, um, it, you know, it affects your body and your sensations, so it makes sense to, you know, soothe with other sensations. So I did do things like I, I would buy smelly soaps and, you know, mm-hmm. try to, if you can get massage, that's awesome, you know, but it's mm-hmm. expensive, so that's why I would run to the showers a lot and, you know, um yeah, so I, I tried to, to use things like that when I could. It is important, I think. And a lot of times, you know, in the very, very beginning, I would just close the curtains and I'd curl up in bed and just distract myself with TV. You know, there's a time for that inner self-observation thought process and recording of all that, and then there's a time just to, like, distract yourself and rest, you know. Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah. You know, different things for different people. TV is one of the addictions I had to quit. I can't have one in my house or I never get anything done. It's like one of the the two addictions I absolutely had to quit completely were television and cigarettes. I just cannot, you know, control those, couldn't deal with those in a controlled manner. So what did you do instead? Uh, Well, for television, I won't allow one in my house, you know. Um, well, I do use food. I, you know, showers are nice. Uh, massage. Um, reading books. Going lately, I read on the internet most of the time. I hardly, I seldom read paper anymore because there's so many uh, journal articles and things that you know easy to access on the internet yeah. now. But um, yeah, television for me just gets me completely sucked in. So that's one I have to yeah. avoid. <laughs> but you know, different yeah. things work for different people. And, you know, different things are addictions for different people. Some people drink alcohol, they don't have a problem with uh, getting addicted to it. So, okay. One of the things I did with my book was um, uh, I, I wrote it for the person who first quits drinking um, and really can't focus on reading. They're that sick. This is like a person who's really gone into it, done it for years, which was me. So I was really keeping that person in mind. That's who I was talking to when I wrote the book. And so I actually made the chapters really short on purpose and and a little exercise up on the fonts a little bit bigger because when I quit, I was so exhausted mentally. I just couldn't concentrate. So I purposely made my book easy reading for people who you know, have trouble concentrating and, you know, can only take little bits at a time. So I, I, I noticed you, you wrote to me um, something called bibliotherapy. Is that what you called it? Yes. About um, reading being beneficial, reading. Was it reading other people's stories or? Uh, many things. Um, reading people's stories or reading techniques or reading self-help books like, um, oh, one coming to mind is Jack Trippy wrote something called The Small Book about how to say no to alcohol. Um, I thought that was a very useful book. It gave you techniques for saying, you know, you know, when the voice tells you to come drink, you just say, no, go away. I'm not interested. And you separate yourself mm-hmm. from your voice. So, that, I mean, there are books that have techniques. There are books that have stories. There are many different books, I think, that can be useful 
your book really has both uh, because it has your story and it has the methods that you use to deal with the things, you know, to deal with overcoming addiction. Yeah, yeah. And those are just some. I mean, there's the ones I created. You know, I'm sure there's many more that, you know, I couldn't do them all. You know, but, yeah, that would be helpful. Oh, yeah, there's a ton of good books out there, and that's one of the things we're doing on the show is uh, bringing a lot of good books to people, and yours is a very excellent book. I'm going to look at some more chapters here because I've got the table of contents open so I can remember what I was reading about. You talked uh, one chapter about memories and about remembering your using times and things like that. And you want to talk about that chapter a little bit? Um, was that the regret? Was that about regrets? I think you talked some about regrets, about, you know, having memories of good times using, having memories of regrets. Um, how do you deal with memories? Um, well, <laughs> it's true. I mean, they can be overwhelming if you let them. And, I don't believe in blocking out thoughts, like even negative thoughts. You know, I don't just immediately jump in with some positive affirmation because I feel like expressing is part of healing, you know. But there's a difference between expressing and dwelling on things, you know. Mm -hmm. So, like, for instance, I have a lot of, you know, a difficult childhood. That, you know, I was molested by my grandfather and my mother left when I was five, you know, and eventually we got back together but I mean it was a hard childhood for a lot of reasons but I don't dwell on that today as the reason I had all of my problems or even consider that you know why blame or anything like that but I feel like you know if I feel some sadness about it if I think of myself then or if I have a memory that that makes me sad I'm gonna allow myself to feel sad but not all day long you know I mean that would be dwelling and you know, so there's, so before I jump in with a positive thinking, a positive thought, I, I want a little bit of being able to hear myself first. So with a with a a memory that upsets me, or or one that makes me miss drinking, even, you know, I'll allow myself to think about that for a minute, and oh yeah, you know, and then but not get emotionally attached to it all over again and over I mean I, I am dramatic I'm a passionate person so mm -hmm. I could I could intensify it you know and I know that but what for you know I'm working on intensifying new feelings that make me feel great which is actually something I have to practice or had to especially practice I'm better at it now but you know I wasn't in the habit of feeling good by default my default was the bad feeling and so I had to sort of take notice when I actually felt something good I had to you know pay attention to that twice <laughs> you know and so you know build up my bank account of good feelings you know and, and because I was out of practice for sure you know numbing for that many years and you know so um so with when the memories come up and they still do I'm still living in Los Angeles and this is where most of the damage happens you know so um it just comes and goes, you know, the same way, like, if I think about my dog, my dog I had to put down a couple of years ago, I might have a tear for a second, and then the thought passes, and I'm doing something else, you know, so I just don't over-intensify it and get stuck on it. Yeah, I found also, because I had similar experiences, um, and I would try, long ago, I would try to approach it analytically, and I would think, well, X, Y, and Z happened to me, therefore I feel, you know, A, B, and C. You know, these bad things happen, therefore it makes me depressed. And that wasn't helpful at all. That would just give me reasons to be depressed. And I had to say, you know, 
I had to take the opposite tag and say, you know, in spite of you know what happened to me in the past, I can choose how I feel now, and I don't have to choose to feel miserable all the time if I don't want to. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. In fact, it's actually kind of it's a habit, you know, to learn to choose to feel a good feeling, and it might even be a new feeling, so it's even kind of harder <laughs> to grasp it. But it is, yeah, it's. It is absolutely a habit. It's a habit to feel bad all the time. And it's mm-hmm. a new habit to start yeah. feeling good some of the time and then more of the time and maybe even most of the time. Right, right. So, yeah, these are really important habits, I think, that we need to work on because, you know, if, mm-hmm. we, keep, uh, if we keep ourselves miserable all the time, it's very hard to stay, you know, away from drugs or alcohol or whatever else will give us relief, you know. But we can choose not to stay miserable all the time. Yeah. And right before I quit drinking the last couple years, I was already at a place where I was like, I feel so bad and so hopeless that, you know, I'm just, I sort of threw in the towel. If I hadn't, you know, maybe the hallucination did it. I mean, that was pretty horrific, but... um, I had already sort of thought, you know, because I was 35 when I quit, and looking back now, being a little bit older, that seems so young, but when I was 35, I felt like I was 90. I had started so young, been thrown into the system so young, I was exhausted and hopeless and torn up, and I really, I felt like, you know, I was ruined. I felt there was just no way, go back to school, forget about it, you know and become, like, quote, normal people. Like, I was such, I was just, I I didn't have hope for that. And, and um, but obviously it's not true because, you know, here I am. You know, but that's how bad I felt. I felt that bad. And so I was just, you know, screw it. You know, the, the world is a mess, and I'm just, you know, I'm just going to drink. You know, too bad. I just sort of made the decision, well, this is the way my life is. You know, before that, you know, I still kind of kept a little hope and tried this and tried that. But towards the end, I'd really, like, just kind of given in. Well, that's well drink. Us, <laughs> that brings us to another one of your chapters I want to talk about. You have a chapter about belief. And you could change those mm-hmm. beliefs, right? Because you were Yeah, beliefs. definitely. <laughs> so if you us. have permission. I mean, it's, if you're aware that you can change them. You know, but if you're told that you're this, you're, and the whole world around you is telling you you're an alcoholic or, you know, or you're in denial, you don't have a lot of room to change a belief, you know, especially if you grew up in that way of thinking, you know, so, but definitely you can change them. I I changed mine, you know. So you uh, had the beliefs like um, the world was miserable, you were miserable, you might as well drink all the time, and you changed to the new beliefs and you don't believe, what are the current beliefs? How would you... So what would you say your current beliefs are? But let me just say about changing those beliefs. It wasn't like I pulled out some self-help book in that day and said, ooh, change my beliefs. I mean, <laughs> you know, it was, a, oh, yeah. it was a process of changing my beliefs. It was, you know, get, stopping the actual ingestion of the drugs and alcohol. I had to do that and bringing in that patience I talked about and, you know, mm-hmm. working with self. So it's not like it wasn't like, oh, it just switched on a, a you know, the switch and changed my beliefs. So, um so, uh, what was your question? What are my beliefs now? Yeah, what are your beliefs now? 
Um, well, I believe in the core goodness of myself that I never did before, and I'm always trying to stay in touch with that. That's that um, foundation I talk about, the inner foundation mm-hmm. um, that really keeps me from having too much temptation or or you know drinking again or anything like that because I, I stay in touch with that goodness and also that curiosity of always wanting to see what else is in there what more I can be or think or have you know not have but you know a greater existence I'm curious you know mm-hmm. so it keeps me going <laughs> as you said it was it's not an overnight process it's actually a long haul to change your beliefs it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of effort and a lot of steps are there any particular uh, things that come to mind that you did that helped you changing your beliefs? Um, well, the immediate thing I did was separate myself from the old beliefs, which is those messages from, um, I hate to say it, I keep saying this, Alcoholics Anonymous, because I'm not here to attack any program. I'm just mm-hmm. separating myself from it in a big way. <laughs> I'm not with the program or the rehabs or anything or that way of thinking, the first thing I did, I separated myself, and I did start with a blank slate. And it was scary, and it was difficult, and it was lonely, but I was determined. So, um, yeah, that that was the first step was, you know, trusting that there was more. There was something else I could know that I hadn't known before, you know. So I, I turned that off. I wouldn't listen to it. In fact, when I started writing this book, um, that – James Frey uh, book had come out, and it, he was on Oprah, and I didn't even watch it. I didn't read the book. I didn't. I didn't want to hear about it. I didn't want anything influencing my own discovery. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I really, I, I separated myself from the world in that way, so I could have a clear vision of what I was thinking. My, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay. You have a chapter here called Passion, and what are you passionate about now? And how did you get passionate about these things? Um, well, I, I, this week I started recording a new CD, which is exciting to me because it's a totally different genre of music than the last CD that came out in March. Um, art, I love that. I'm extremely passionate about helping people who struggle, not just with addictions, but the kind of despair that I went through, the suicidal, I became suicidal when I was 11, and that was before I started using drugs and alcohol. So I really... I have a deep concern and care for people who suffer that deeply. You know, I want to encourage them, you know, that it's going to, it can pass and you can live through those feelings and there's, it can be, get better and it's not who you really are, you know, things like that. So I'm passionate when people write me. I spend a lot of time, you know, writing people back and, and I care about that, um, about people, um, you know, and writing and art and music. Okay, Amy, thank you very much. I see our next guest is coming in. I want to, this was Amy Lee Coy. She was talking about her book. Um, it's called From Death Do I Part. It's available on Amazon. We put a link to it from our website on our recommended reading on the HAMS website. Thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Amy. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to do a quick little blurb for HAMS now. 
where HAMS is a support group. It's free of charge. It's lay-led for anyone who wants to make a positive change in their drinking, from reduced drinking to safer drinking to quitting altogether. The, ha- the website is hamsnetwork.org. The book is How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. Uh, Brian, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Ken. Hi, Brian. This is Brian Murphy from Self-Led Solutions, which is a it's a treatment would you call it a treatment program, or do you were actually an individual counselor in New York City? Well, I, yeah, I'm an individual counselor. So, Self-Led Solutions is the name of the website. So it's it's not a program. It's 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 just me. And, okay. Uh, yeah, that's the name of the site. Okay, I've talked to you before a bit about what you do. I know you support harm reduction. Last time we were talking, we were talking about internal family systems, and I'd like to start there. Tell us a little bit about the internal family systems model and how you use it for therapy. Okay. It's um, it's one of a few, of <clears throat> actually like four uh, models that I use. But it's it's, uh, it's like it's my first love. It's the one that's my favorite, uh, my personal favorite. Um, I, if we, we usually think of ourselves as being one person, and that's like the common model for what a human being is. But this, this uh, internal family systems therapy says, hey, you could think of yourself in a different way, and, and this different way can actually make a, a lot of sense. Um, think of yourself as a, as, an, as a system, as an internal system. So, for instance, you may have one part of you that wants to drink or do drugs or do <clears throat> some, some habit that another part of you really, really disapproves of. And guess what? These two parts do not get along, and they, they are at war within each other. And that, mm-hmm. that right there explains why I can <clears throat> make a resolution that, you know, whatever, I'm not going to drink this evening. And then two minutes later, I find that there's a, a you know, a glass in my hand, and I am drinking, because mm-hmm. one part of me made the resolution, and one part of me went to the refrigerator. Yeah? Yeah. Now, I'm looking here... Do you here. want me to say more, or you got to... Go ahead. Yeah, I, I've got the Wikipedia article up online right here, and it talks about managers, exiles, firefighters, and then the self. What are managers? All right. Uh, the manager... Uh, actually, the two parts that I just described, right are protective parts. Mm-hmm. And the one, the, most commonly, right, the one that said, I'm going to do things right and I'm not going to drink and I'm going to, like, be an exemplary person and and beyond, above criticism, that part in this system, in this model, is, is usually called a manager mm-hmm. because it's trying to, like, manage problems out of existence. Um the firefighter is much more likely to be the one that says, uh, let's just go get drunk, right? Mm-hmm. Because the firefighter and the, the way that um, the guy who created this model, Richard Schwartz, 
um, sees like like real firefighters now they're in the the, the world. Um, they see a fire, and they just go for it. And they they smash the windows, they knock down the doors, they they spray water all over the house because they got one intention, and that's to put out the fire. And um, the collateral damage is unfortunate, but like it's not as important as putting out the fire. So you may ask, in the internal system, what is this fire? And the fire is the pain, the traumatic pain of the parts that they call the exiles. And I'm not I'm I'm not so interested in like the names. You can think of this as protectors, the drinking part and and the let me live my life right part. They're both protectors, mm-hmm. and what they're protecting is the part of me that got hurt. And quite often got hurt when I was very little and too small to you know take care of myself and 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 suffered, and that suffering young part that's the one called the exile and generally it has to be kind of like internally exiled away so that um, we don't have to feel that suffering 24-7 and it has a variety of of parts protecting it and they have different strategies okay and this model addiction is, is the result of trauma I believe is that correct? Basically, yes. That's, that's that's how I would put it. Um, and you want to think of trauma. Um, you know, usually we think of, of, of trauma as something overtly dramatic, but being ignored, being neglected, having people around you, like, all the time who really don't get you, don't understand like who you are like you know that's let's call that a trauma let's call when let's call that I, I think I, I like to use the term spiritual trauma mm-hmm. I think we live in a really really artificial age in a culture that's not very close to the earth and we cut ourselves off from our own spirits and that's a spiritual trauma and some people seem to deal with that and other people like they it hurts a lot and they then they resort to some of these mm, self-harming strategies in order to not feel the pain tremendously I just want to mention another piece like because there was the the other word that you had in there was self yeah yes and your previous guest, I thought she said a really, really great thing, um, that she believes in, I'm paraphrasing, in the core goodness of herself. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really crucial. And if you if you don't have that, you'd better go looking for, for that belief. Um, and in, so in this model, it says, uh, my core being is these parts with its pain and its strategies for, for helping out with pain. My core self, my spirit, can't be messed with. It, it, it's its own beautiful, miraculous thing. 
And if I can bring as much self-energy as possible towards my healing, then then I'm gonna then I'm gonna heal. Yeah. Okay. And in this model, how do you uh, how do we achieve the healing? How do we deal with the trauma that the firefighters are trying to put out? Right. Right. Um, well, you. I'm going to take this one from the top. Usually, people they they come in and they say, you know, I have this terrible, terrible problem. My my drinking is out of control. Um, and so I would invite them to to like go inside to experience their own internal experience, um, which which we're not always in the habit of doing. And I would say, can you find the part of you that wants to drink? Can you find it like right now as we're sitting here? Um, and quite often, people experience that in a physical dimension as well. Yes, I, I, I'm in touch with that drinking part of me, and I'm feeling it as an agitation in the pit of my stomach, or I'm feeling it in my heart, or, you know, wherever in, in the body. And then comes this, like, really... I, I, I love this question that, that uh, Richard Schwartz brought up. The question is, do you, client, feel towards your drinking part? So, okay, I hate it. I really wish it would just go away. So when the person says that, they're not actually speaking with a whole lot of that self-energy, which is like not judging. It, 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 it's just um, non-judgmental and it's, it's hovering there being beautiful. Um, okay, can you ask the part of you that hates the drinking part to sort of step aside for a little bit, to like join us here in this healing work. And you, know, a, you have a back and forth, you negotiate with the, the part that hates the drinking part. Okay, okay, it says, I will step back. How do you feel towards the drinking part now? Hmm, actually, I'm really scared of it. Okay. Now we work with the part that's scared of the healing part to also step back. Finally, finally, how do you feel towards the drinking part? Well, you know what? I feel a little sorry uh, towards it, and I'm curious about why it has to be so insistent. I'm just curious about it. At that point, <clears throat> the person has a whole lot of self-energy that they've built up, and they can actually have a meaningful in a conversation with a part of them that wants to drink or, or do whatever habit that they disapprove of in, in other regions of their being. Um, <clears throat> at that point, you befriend. What you're doing is you're befriending the drinking part <clears throat> and you are maybe hearing a little bit of its story. Like, well, how come, how come you, you feel that you need to make so-and-so drink all the time and you know what if you if you didn't have to do your job um, of making them drink all the time like and you could have your dream job what would it be what would you actually like to do instead because all of these parts 
were press ganged into doing their roles, into performing their roles at some point in their lives. And before that, they were also much more filled with self. They were like, they were filled with enthusiasm and spontaneity and, and had a beautiful uh, feeling for life. So after you've befriended the drinking part, you can ask them the crucial question of like, what is the feeling, what is the part that you are in the business of protecting? If, if it's a protective part, it's protecting someone in there. And when you've built up enough trust within the system, then that drinking part will sort of like say, oh, okay, I'll, I'll tell you, who, I'll show you who I'm protecting. And usually you'll see an image of, of, of a child. So quite often like it's, it's going to be a young part. And some, some people mm-hmm. even do this like in really different ways. And sometimes it's quite visual. And when it's quite visual, the person will see an image of a child. Mm-hmm. Um, then you, you go through that same process of befriending the child part and kind of clearing the ground so you don't have negative responses child part and when trust has like really really grown with the child part you allow it to tell its story to you because um, I think trauma only sticks around like in a really toxic toxic way when there was like nobody there to help you through it afterwards be there with you and like to get it like just how painful this was um, but we can because these parts get frozen in time we can actually approach them in our adult self and be that person to help the, the exile the child part through like to, to have it be heard to help it through its pain then the final step here is really sort of strange sounding um, by the sort of vision of ordinary therapy I think it's it's much closer to shamanic techniques from indigenous cultures that have been healing people for thousands of years not just like a 150 or whatever that, that mm-hmm. therapy has been healing people this is what you do you ask the child part to scan its body the imaginal level, the child part scans its body, and you say, look for something that is in or around your body that does not belong there. And it's remarkable because I've never yet really had someone say, mm, child part says there's nothing there. There's always something like, oh, there's this mucky stuff over its belly, or there's a rock in its heart or a magnet in its head. Something, something, something that represents the residue of toxicity of, 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 a, of the trauma. And then you say, okay, what would you like to give that burden, that, that thing that's not really you, what would you like to give it up to? Air, fire, or water, or earth, or light, or something else. And, again, rather remarkably, 
maybe after a little stutter and like, I don't know what you mean. Yeah, I know you don't know what, what I mean, but just like try it out and see see what you feel an affinity with. Um, child part then gives up that burden back to the universe, you could say, and then replaces the, the place where the burden has been in their body with a quality that that they need, that they want, like passion, love, resilience, hope, and then you're done. Then the, the healing, is, well, actually the healing is not all done because then you can go back to those protectors and you can do the exact same healing with them. Um, they also carry burdens. They also have had a bit of a hard time of it. Those protector parts are incredibly loyal and they're not going to give up their jobs, not going to give them up completely until they can feel that the, the exile, the traumatized part, is safe and then then they're like oh you know I could have a new job I could help help him or her be creative that sounds like more fun and mm-hmm. then they are also ready to unburden so that's that's the long version <laughs> okay that sounds good that sounds really helpful uh, another one that we mentioned last time we talked we talked a little bit about EMDR just eye movement right. desensitization and reprocessing and tell us a little bit about what that is okay Uh, I love all these long names they make (laughs) them so scientific Um, EMDR was um, discovered actually also in the 80s um, by Francine Shapiro and the story is that she was like a graduate student out west she was walking through the park and she was stressing over something or other and by the time she finished her walk in the park and came out the other side she realized she wasn't stressed she said well what on earth was I doing that helps me de-stress without me noticing and she realized that she had been this sounds odd too like switching her gaze left right left right left right left right and uh, it out in a more methodical way uh, with her friends and then finally in like a, a, a doctoral study of making the eyes go from left to right to left to right to left to right while calling up and then processing a traumatic memory. Um, after a while, they discovered that it, it wasn't actually anything special about the eyes. It was the left, right, left, right bit. And you, you can do this at, at home um, there's a book called uh, Tapping In by Laurel Parnell, um, where you just like tap on your knees, left knee, right knee, left knee, right knee, while maybe processing a bad memory or even bringing yourself to uh, a, you know, a good, a, a, a pleasing image and like making it stronger by more, more long words, a bilateral stimulation, which just means left, right, left, right. Um, some people who, you know, some people take to that internal family systems model like like a duck to water. They're like, oh yeah, I get it. And then mm-hmm. other people, it's like, I oh, know, I'm I'm not feeling it. I can't feel this part. And so we tried a little bit, and then if it really, if that doesn't work, um, or some instinct is telling me, I say, let's try EMDR. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, it's it's all 
aiming for the same place, and just different people will get there by different routes. And there's another one I want to mention. I especially want to mention this one because uh, because you don't need a therapist for it. it. This one is called EFT, Emotional Freedom Technique, mm. or tapping. And you, you can go to YouTube and you'll see a whole lot of people <clears throat> who teach you these um, various places on the body, which are like, there's like 12 places, acupuncture spots, where you just tap with your fingers which is like the same, that has the same effect as putting in an acupuncture needle. Um, and that, if you think of acupuncture as like settling the energy system, harmonizing and stabilizing it, both emotionally and physically, and the tacking does the same thing. And you can work on, well, this, this one is actually could be good, is good, uh, for cravings, and you can you can do tapping to help you through cravings. And I've I've worked with people uh, in in that way to uh, to help them out. And then they've got this little tool that they can use any time that they want. Okay. You also mentioned uh, shamanism. Um, do you incorporate that in uh, your practice? Yeah. Um, I, I've got my shaman's rattle from Gabon and um, a, you could call it, it you could call it shamanic uh, you could call it sometimes guided imagery it's a little bit like the internal family systems work sometimes in that you go inside um, but we do like a body relaxation piece and that's like it's a sort of interactive guided meditation is, is what I do quite often. Um, and I sort of like, so where are you now? Oh, okay. Well, go down that stairway and see what's at the bottom and and, uh, and stuff like that. I also actually we have a group that we're doing here in New York City on Monday nights. Uh, I'm doing it with uh, Dimitri Mugianis, uh who went to Gabon uh, six times and got initiated at different levels of, of the uh, Bwiti spirituality over there. And um, we do a group together in which it's, it's not specifically related to drinking or drugs. It's just related to helping your soul feel good and going on a little journey. Okay. So that's just uh, panic. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that sounds good. Is this the same Dimitri? I, I heard about a Dimitri that's working with Ibogaine. That's right. That's Is the he... same one. Yeah. Um, they there's a movie. It's called "I'm Dangerous with Love." Mm-hmm. It's uh, all about all about Dimitri. Um, Ibogaine. Ibogaine is. It's a substance that's derived from the iboga plant, um, which grows in West Africa. The Bwiti spirituality is based on that. Iboga is a hallucinogenic plant. Um, many years ago now, uh, a guy who like actually uh, deceased not long ago, Howard Lotsoff, mm-hmm. um, 
was a drug user, and he went out. He was out there, and 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 he was like, oh, here's a here's a drug I never heard of. Let me try this one. And um, so took some ibogaine, and it's an incredibly intense experience, and it's it's like it's no joke, and the person is um, immobilized for like. 12 hours to 18 hours. Um, anyway, when he came out of it, he found that um, his dope habit had, like, gone away. And he thought, oh, that's remarkable. And he essentially brought then the, the Iboga plant medicine to the West. And uh, where Dimitri came in was he, he took Ibogaine Oh, a number of years ago now, and he became an underground practitioner of, uh, of ibogaine to to help people out, to help people um, get get that get the chemical dependency off their backs and um, begin a new life. Um, recently, he got arrested, and, um, and he's, he's out and about. But um, ibog- ibogaine is for whatever reason it's not exactly a recreational drug but for whatever reason it's a schedule one substance and it's not legal in america it's legal in other countries but not here so that's that's the story so far with that one yeah i i met howard uh, a couple of years back at the harm reduction conference in miami when yeah. i was there i'd seen bits of his book on the internet and I'm still interested in this, and we're going to, uh, in about a month, we're going to be looking at some of the LSD treatments they did for alcoholism in Canada in the 60s. I have a story in that's written about that. It's going to be a guest of ours. Oh, cool. That'll be really, really interesting. Because um, right now, there's quite a resurgence of, um, uh, in that interest. It, it was, It had to go away in those days as there was this, you know, massive reaction to the the sixties and the hippies and and all of that and and maybe maybe some stuff got shut down that could have been really, really interesting as as used as helping people and for investigation of the soul. And <clears throat> been a long wait until the, the country is maybe ready to, to look at look at this stuff again and say maybe there's something in this. Maybe it can be helpful. Maybe maybe there's more than one way of helping people out. That's correct. Okay, Brian, thank you very much for being our guest tonight. Okay, you're very, very welcome. Okay, thank you. I'm going to bring Stanton on the air now. Hello, Stanton. How are you doing? Great, Ken, especially after another great show that you put on, you know, broadcasting around the globe. Um, I, I, I know you're aware I wrote the foreword to Amy Lee Coy's book, yes. From Death to I Part, so it was just it was wonderful to hear her speak on your show. She brought a lot of passion to it, and I... I was fascinated that both of your guests emphasized one important thing. I I wonder if you noticed. 
that core belief that you're mm-hmm. of your own goodness. They both. Uh, Amy made that point, and then your last guest also did. And so, uh, you know, I was happy to hear that point reinforced. And I think it's an important ingredient because, to my way of thinking, that's the opposite of the message. Well, Amy was pretty specific about that. That's the opposite of the message you're given in disease treatment where you're told that your core self is is crippled and forever damned and can never get better. Did you get that message when you were uh, hanging around AA? Oh, absolutely. Um, when I look at it now, it's like you need to rely on the group. The group has all the power. You have no power. Give all your power to the group, and you have to be worthless. You know, you can't say you can't feel good about yourself. Not allowed. That's a funny message, and it was very, you know, Amy uh, came to a realization, you know, and a hard-fought, hard-won realization that she conveys really, I think, powerfully about that. There's another big event that happened today. Uh, do you know what that is? Mm, not uh, today. You... No. Well, um, the Global Commission on Drug Policy released its report. Oh, the vote. The, the vote. Oh, everyone was. Uh, oh, I know what you're talking about. Everyone was on Facebook saying vote to vote for this petition because we were petitioning them. But what is what? Are, what was the result? I haven't seen the result. Well, the, the Global Commission issued a report, you know, and had this very distinguished panel: four past presidents of countries, the Prime Minister of Greece, George Shultz, Kofi Annan, and they said. We're really approaching the drug war wrongly. It's Everybody knows it's ineffective. I mean, one quote, which is typical, um, is that political leaders and public figures should have the courage to articulate publicly what many of them acknowledge privately, that the evidence overwhelmingly demonstrates that repressive strategies will not solve the drug problem and that the war on drugs has not and cannot be won. But more than that, what what I found particularly impactful was. Uh, by, by the way, can you guess how the um, Obama administration reacted? Almost instantly. Um, Obama's been very conservative on this issue. I assume that uh, he's favoring the drug war. Gil Karlikowski responded. He called it misguided. But here's the key phrase that I want all of your scores of listeners to keep in mind. This is the basis for their continuing the drug war. Uh, by, by the way, if you go to the national um, drug policy, you know, uh, Kurlikowski is the, uh, is the head of the Office of National Drug Control Policy. If you go to their website, they claim to be concerned primarily with prevention, treatment, and recovery. And here's what the National Drug Control Office of ONDCP said. Drug addiction is a disease that can be successfully prevented and treated. And that's the basis on which they completely rejected the new uh, global strategy report. Do 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 you see what the link is between those two things? why they should say, well, it's a disease, and then they should reject this idea that we should take uh, uh, public health and a a human relations approach, a human uh, affairs approach to 
drugs? Um, unless they think there's some way they're going to stop everybody from using drugs. That's all I can think of. Well, their concept is that, well, it's a disease, so you shouldn't take drugs in the first place because you'll get the disease, and then if you get the disease, we'll cure it. But I'm reminded of something Alan Marlott once wrote. The disease theory is really the moral model in sheep's clothing. Mm -hmm. Um, Their idea is, well, drugs are bad. People shouldn't do them. They'll be punished if they do them. We've got to prevent them from doing drugs, and then we'll cure their illness if they do do drugs. And that leaves out the entire range of human experience. People who use drugs without harm, people, God forbid, who even enjoy drugs, uh, people who can't stop from taking drugs and need other kinds of life assistance. That's all put into one big disease bucket. And the critical thing for me was that there are some people in the reform movement, they'll remain unnamed, who say, well, we need to take a disease approach because that'll show that people need to be treated for their disease rather than being locked up. But Kurlikowski and Obama and many liberals and recovering people have completely merged together the concept of the disease of addiction with the idea of a repressive approach to addiction that you can't let people ever take drugs, that you must do everything possible to ferret out drug use and drug supplies and penalize people if they try to take drugs. And that's totally consistent in their minds with what they claim is a health approach to addiction. And really what they're saying is drugs are bad. People shouldn't use drugs. They'll be punished if they use drugs, either naturally, read by God, or we're going to punish them. So um, it's fascinating to me that, you know, under a liberal regime, we actually get a strong or even a stronger drug war support, anti-drug policy, than we might actually get under Republicans. That was a shocking bottom line for me from this great revelation, this powerful report uh, that says that people have human rights, even drug users, um, and uh, the whole way that we're thinking about drugs is incorrect and counterproductive. Let me turn it back to you and uh, Worldwide Radio, Harm Reduction Blog Radio. Take it, Ken. Okay, I'm just going to comment on that really quickly. Uh, because I've said many times my two biggest addictions that I had to abstain from totally were television and cigarettes. Well, the government does want to protect me from cigarettes, but the government certainly isn't trying to protect me or anyone else from television addiction by banning television. So I don't, I don't think they're realistic. They actually about use it. the phrase in their report: "People whose drug use doesn't harm anybody else should be left alone." That's what they actually said in the report, which is so stunning to us, and disease people who say, well, they can't be left alone. They have a disease that we must cure. Okay. I'm going to announce our guest for next week. Thank you, Stanton, for helping me close up. Our guest next week will be Bob Myers, who uh, wrote about the craft approach to uh, significant others with addictions. And then we have our guest from Life Ring, who... Uh, uh, 
missed us the other time, but he's going to be back. He's going to talk to us about Life Ring. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for the show tonight, and good night, everyone.